humans advocate for justice in some form, but how do we know when we're truly advocating for justice? The path of discernment runs thick with obstacles, media half-truths, ideologues pushing agendas, macro and micro narratives filtering out objectivity, and polemic discourse more concerned with the polemic than the discourse. How do we gain clarity for the forest from the trees? Born in 1817, Frederick Douglass was an American social reformer, abolitionist, orator, writer, and statesman. After escaping from slavery in Maryland, he became a national leader in the abolitionist movement. During his visits to the United Kingdom between 1846 and 1848, Douglass asked British Christians never to support American churches that permitted slavery and he expressed his happiness to know that a group of ministers in Belfast had refused to admit slaveholders as members of the church. On his return to the United States, Douglas founded the North Star, a weekly publication with the motto, right is of no sex, truth is of no color, God is the father of us all, and we are all brethren. Douglas later wrote a letter to his former slaveholder in which he denounced him for leaving Douglas's family illiterate. He writes, your wickedness and cruelty committed in this respect on your fellow creatures are greater than all the stripes you have laid upon my back or theirs. It is an outrage upon the soul, a war upon the immortal spirit, and one for which you must give account at the bar of our common father and creator. Douglas was a firm believer in the equality of all peoples, be they white, black, Indian, female, Native American, or Chinese immigrants. He believed in dialogue and in making alliances across racial and ideological divides, as well as the liberal values of the U.S. Constitution. He was also the first African-American nominated for Vice President of the United States. When radical abolitionists, under the motto No Union with Slaveholders, criticized Douglas's willingness to engage in dialogue with slave owners, he replied, I would unite with anybody to do right, and with nobody to do wrong. A great lesson for us all in 2021. Douglas embodied his physical manifestation as he was of mixed race, which included Native American and African on his mother's side, and European on his father's side. Douglas was a deeply spiritual man, as his home continues to show. The fireplace mantle features busts of two of his favorite philosophers, David Friedrich Strauss, author of The Life of Jesus, and Ludwig Feuerbach, author of The Essence of Christianity. In today's episode, we engage with a person who has devoted his life to the causes of justice, but like Douglas, not myopically, subjectively, or through the skewed lenses of political commentary. His orthopraxy is both inspiring and infectious. Fittingly, he is also a recipient of the Frederick Douglass 200, a list of 200 people around the world who best embody the spirit and work of the aforementioned American hero, Frederick Douglass. Stay with us as we discover a man who not only embodies a 6-8 culture life, but is equipping the masses to do likewise on today's episode of the 6-8 Culture Podcast. Welcome to the 6-8 Culture Podcast, an international community where we share stories of transformation and restoration from the inside out based on justice, kindness, and humility. Join us at 68culture.org and come journey with us today. I'm your host, Rob McKinley. 
Today's guest is a pastor, speaker, author, visionary, and global humanitarian. A son of Korean immigrants and a natural entrepreneur, he spends much of his time circling the globe speaking about the intersection of faith, justice, and leadership. He's the president and CEO of Bread for the World and Bread Institute, a prominent nonpartisan Christian advocacy organization urging both national and global decision makers to help end hunger, both in the United States and around the world. He's also the founder of One Day's Wages, a grassroots movement to alleviate extreme global poverty. The vision of One Day's Wages ignited when he was in Burma visiting at-risk schools. He realized the tiny amounts of money needed to keep these children in school. From that visit, both he and his wife launched a Facebook group, Fight Global Poverty, and agreed to give $1 for every member who joined up to $100,000. Within months, more than 1 million individuals joined. As a result, in 2009, he ended up giving his entire annual salary, $68,000, when the U.S. economy was in a significant downturn. He and his family gave the remaining of the $100,000 in 2010. But it was through this he realized it was the small giving, one day's wages, that could make the biggest difference. Since it launched in October 2009, One Day's Wages has raised over $8 million for projects worldwide. He wears many hats. He's also the founder and former senior pastor of Quest Church, an urban multicultural and multi-generational church in Seattle, Washington. After serving there for 18 years, he stepped aside at Quest in 2018. While at Quest, he was also the founder and executive director of the Q Cafe, an innovative nonprofit community cafe. He's been featured in multiple news outlets, including Good Morning America, The New York Times, The Seattle Times, Christianity Today, The Guardian, and numerous other media outlets. For his entrepreneurial work and spirit, he was honored as one of 50 everyday American heroes and as previously mentioned, a recipient of the Frederick Douglass 200, a list of 200 people around the world who best embody the spirit and work of Frederick Douglass, one of the most influential figures in history. A graduate of the University of California and Princeton Theological Seminary, he was also the recipient of the 2017 Distinguished Alumni Award from Princeton Theological Seminary. His first book, Overrated, Are We More in Love with the Idea of Changing the World Than Actually Changing the World, was released in 2014. And his second book, Thou Shalt Not Be a Jerk, A Christian's Guide to Engaging in Politics, was released in March 2020. A third book has just been released entitled No Longer Strangers, Transforming Evangelism with Immigrant Communities. He and his wife have been married for 23 years and have three children. Together they live in Seattle, Washington. Eugene Cho, a real pleasure to welcome you to the 6-8 Culture Podcast. Rob, thank you so much for having me. It's a joy and a pleasure, and I've been looking forward to our conversation. As have I. Thank you very much for joining us, Eugene. It's really great to reconnect after a few years. Apologies on the long introduction. I got worn out just reading it, so I can't imagine living it. You're leading and living a very dynamic life that's full and is transforming many people and communities. Please share with us a little bit about your upbringing. What about your upbringing helped shape the man that we're talking to today? 
Well, first of all, yes, that was a long and awkward introduction, but I'll take it. Thank you so much for your generous hospitality, your spirit of encouragement. I think that says a lot about how you seek to embody what it means to follow Christ. But to your question about upbringing, there's probably two or three things that have been very formative. I was born in Seoul, South Korea, and immigrated to the United States when I was six years old. And immigration was hard. It was challenging. It was difficult. It was not what I envisioned, in part because I had no idea what to expect. Instantaneously, as a six-year-old, right after we immigrated to San Francisco, thrusted into the public school system in San Francisco, I think I was just shocked because I realized I was different. I was unable to speak English. Kids can be great, but they could also be cruel in some ways. And so I began to experience life as an other, to experience life as a marginalized person, if you will. And that's really shaped why it's important to look out for those who are on the margins. A second part of my upbringing that's very formative is the story of my parents and my grandparents and my ancestors. My father was born in what is now called North Korea. He was born in a small town outside of a larger city called Pyongyang, which is now the capital of North Korea. This was obviously before the Korean War, before one country was divided into two. And as I've grown, I've learned more and more about my parents' story. They both experienced tremendous challenges, experienced hunger and poverty. My father, I think just about two, three years ago, when he was around 82 years old, he's still alive, he's 85 now. But just a couple of years ago, he shared with me for the very first time that he was living in a refugee camp for some months, separated away from his family. Mm. And so because they've experienced hunger and poverty, and yet despite all of those things, they encountered Christians who along difficult parts of their lives sought to be generous and kind and gracious to help, not just with scripture or the living word or with prayer, but to actually embody compassion, mercy, and justice. So in many ways, the calling that I have is formed by what I know, my parents, and what I've experienced growing up. That's a little bit about my story. Amazing how different things can be just with the separation of one generation. And now that you've grown up in the States, everything has completely changed. Had there been not a few providential events that happened, you could have been born in the Republic of North Korea. No, that's right. And to be candid, we actually have family members that are still in North Korea. And that's not a abnormal story. It's a very common story. Millions of families were separated by the war. My great-grandfather was one of the first people in his village to say yes to Jesus. He was so gripped by the gospel message of Christ that, as I've been told by my parents, he came back home and shared that news about Jesus with my great-grandmother. She also came to profess Christ as Lord, and our whole household came to faith. And while I'm sure they experienced a sense of joy and depth and meaning, they also experienced persecution and hardship. And it was ultimately that persecution, along with them understanding that the climate politically in North Korea, or at least the northern part of Korea at that time was changing. And they decided to flee south. My father was six years old when he and his larger family decided to flee south during that particular time. Again, not 
all of our family members decided to make that trip. And so it still burdens me tremendously knowing that, again, millions of families were separated by a devastating war that not only separated families and a nation into two, but left millions of people desolate and desperate and hungry and impoverished. As you know, several significant Christian NGOs started in Korea in response to the devastation. World Vision, Compassion, Mm -hmm. and I believe a couple others. Yeah, that fight needs to continue on for justice. You're continuing to carry this banner of faith. One of the many hats that you wear is a pastor. You're no longer pastoring the church. So how has that transition been for you? What do you miss the most of your time as a pastor of Quest Church? That's a great question. The answer is yes. I miss being a pastor of a local church. Although, you know, I tell friends and colleagues and others who ask that my calling as a pastor has not changed. It may look different, but that hasn't been stripped away from me. My calling, or I guess my arena is different, but I'm not pastoring a local church. I love so many things about being a pastor of a local church, especially shepherding, caring, discipling with people day to day, week to week. And so I miss those things. But I will also say that there are some things that I don't miss because they're also very difficult. I often joke somewhat seriously joke that the best thing about church is people. The most challenging thing about church is people. Sometimes the same people, don't tell them I said that. And I think in many ways, it's a microcosm of life. The most meaningful things are oftentimes some of the most challenging things as well. We live still a mile away from Quest Church, church that my wife and I planted. Our kids still go out there and we continue to just pray that God's glory might be manifested through Quest Church in Seattle. Yeah, that's great. And I know there's some great stories behind Quest Church and how that got planted as well and redeeming some issues in the neighborhood. Great, great work that's being done through there. Earlier, I touched on the story of one day's wages in the introduction, Eugene. Can you share a little bit more on how that unfolded? You gave away your entire salary in 2009. What was it about your trip to Burma that initiated this? And how did you live in 2009 with no income? Thank you for sharing that story. A couple things, maybe to even backtrack a little bit. You know, I just want to take a moment to elevate and to highlight and to pray, even right now for the nation and the people of Burma and Myanmar, all that's going on in that country. I know that you and your audience care not just about issues in our own backyard, in our nation, but among the larger nations, including those who are suffering. And so, you know, my heart is broken in response to all that is going on. And so we pray for peace in Burma, Myanmar. But to your question about how one day's wages started, I had a chance to visit a makeshift classroom in the jungles of Burma. And in this particular village, they didn't even have a name because so many communities We're moving from place to place in the jungle, fleeing away from an oppressive military government. I actually think this village, they were given a number, and I think they were number 81. 
And as I was visiting this particular village, I was on what some would call a vision trip with a couple of pastors from the United States. Mm -hmm. And when I walked into this classroom, I was petrified by an image that was plastered on a chalkboard in this makeshift classroom. So imagine about 20 tables, 20 chairs, this greenish, grayish, over-scarred chalkboard. And it was a classroom for first to fifth graders. And this image, it was a poster, a collage of photos of men, women, and children with missing body parts and blood oozing out of some of these images. Hmm. Again, it is really one of the most graphic, violent posters. I was having a dissonance because I was trying to process why such a violent poster was in a classroom for first to fifth graders. And it was at that moment, my host, in his imperfect English, sensing that I was disturbed, actually invites me to come closer to this poster. And when I do so, he gets on his knees and he points to the bottom row of this poster. And there are these grayish, green, metallic contraptions. And again, in his imperfect English, he says, these are landmines. We must teach children avoid landmines. And I think it was at that moment I realized that they placed these images at the forefront of the classroom to be a warning to these children. Uh, during this trip, very sadly, I had a chance to meet some of the survivors of these landmines. And when I met with some of the elders of this village, they had shared with me in response to my question, what are some of their challenges? They had shared that schools and paying the salaries of teachers were a challenge. And it was at that moment, being inquisitive and doing research, I had asked them how much their salaries were. And their response was $40. And my first thought was, oh, you mean $40 per day? And I actually asked them and they laughed and scoffed, shook their head. And I said, I'm sorry, did you mean $40 a week? They again shook their head. And at this point, my mind is blown because the assumption was their salaries for these teachers were $40 a month. And when I had said that, they again shook their head and said that their salaries were $40 per year. Incredible. And so I think it was that moment when I came home beginning to process, you know, what can we do? And as a pastor, I thought I could do a sermon, maybe I can write a blog post, maybe I can put something on Facebook or on social media. But my wife and I committed to spend some time praying about what we could do. You know, to be honest with you, your introduction about one day's wages, again, I'm so grateful for your generosity. But I want to be very candid. It was not something we had ever intended on doing. That wasn't part of the plan mm. at all. It was during this time of prayer that we were convicted by the Holy Spirit to give up a year's wages. Now, my wife said yes. I said no. <laughs> and in fact, it took me three years to come around to that conviction. Because in some ways, it took us three years to save, simplify our lives, and also sell off things that we did not need, including my 1989 blue Mazda Miata which I aptly called Blue Thunder, which I still miss, just for the record. I still sure. miss that yeah. Blue Miata. I just want to be very honest that it wasn't something that we had envisioned. And I think had we known 
I can't speak for my wife. Had I known how challenging those three years would have been, I would have said no from the outset. But I'm grateful that God never really shows the full journey, but it just shows us enough for us to have faith to keep on pressing forward. And one last thing that I'll share is that, you know, we have taken some criticism for sharing the fact that we've given up a year's wages. Our intent isn't to be boastful or to come across as holier than thou, but just to simply acknowledge that we live in a very cynical world among all generations, including and especially among younger people. And we felt it was important for us not to ask people to do something that we weren't willing to do ourselves in some fashion or form. And so it was in sharing our decision to give up a year's wages that we were then inspired by this vision to compel people, to invite people, not by fear, guilt, or shame, to inspire people to consider giving just one day's of their wages at least once a year, maybe once a quarter or more often. And that's the story of one day's wages. Yeah, and what an incredible story it is. I think that people also don't realize the prevalence of landmines still existing in countries like Cambodia, Myanmar, Vietnam, Laos. I've been all over Vietnam, Laos, and Cambodia, and there's still so many landmines there. It's a major issue. So seeing that as a catalyst to kick this off, Eugene, it's a very compelling story. If people want to know more about One Day's Wages, we'll have more information near the end of this. Listening to the judicious and perceptive humanitarian and advocate Eugene Cho. Let's continue as he shares his work as president of Bread for the World, strategically headquartered in Washington, D.C. And stay with us as we also gain valuable insights into three of Eugene's books, books that I would contend are on the must read list. Eugene, you're an author, pastor, speaker, humanitarian, visionary, and activist, among other things. You're currently the president and CEO of Bread for the World and the Bread Institute, headquartered in Washington, D.C. I want to just read a little bit of what the website states. Bread for the World is a collective Christian voice urging our nation's decision makers to end hunger at home and abroad. By changing policies, programs, and conditions that allow hunger and poverty to persist, we provide help and opportunity at home and far beyond where we live. We can end hunger in our time, but churches and charities can't do it all. Our government must also do its part. With a stroke of a pen, policies are made that redirect millions of dollars and affect millions of lives. By making our voices heard in Congress, we make our nation's laws fairer and more compassionate. We leverage big changes for people in our country and around the world who struggle with hunger. Can you share with our listeners more about Bread for the World and the inroads that you're making? I just began my role about a year ago, and it has been just very challenging. It's a tremendous opportunity, but also challenging, in part because, as you just read, we engage the political process. And in the United States, as it is in many places around the world, we're living in a very increasingly polarized, chaotic political landscape. Mm -hmm. And Bread for the World is a nonpartisan organization working in bipartisan ways to help end hunger. Now, what are some of the ways in which we do this? 
Domestically, we're talking about programs like SNAP or WIC, Women, Infant, and Children. It's actually a program that my wife and I benefited from about 25 years ago. Safety net programs. We're talking about changing laws or policies that were unjust. For example, we helped recently pass laws that would benefit farmers of color who, for many, many years, were receiving the short end of programs and policies. Globally, we know that as a result of the pandemic, 270 more million people are experiencing acute hunger. And so we have been working behind the scenes in every single COVID bill in the United States to advocate for, to speak on behalf of, to elevate, to amplify the reality and plight of those who are experiencing hunger and poverty, certainly abroad, but also here in the United States. It's a lot of work, a lot of challenges. And so we do it through, again, making sure that there's a significant, robust research and analysis through our institute. We have a government relations team that are regularly engaging members of Congress and the administration. We have a faith engagement team that's working with believers and churches and denominations and other organizations. Again, trying to build up a groundswell of thousands and thousands of people. Again, trying to elevate the realities of these challenges. We also have an organizing team. We actually have staff around the country who are on the ground with activists, with leaders, with pastors, with churches, developing momentum in the things that we're advocating for. It's great work that you're doing. I remember when you announced that you were appointed the president and I just saw an avalanche of support for you from all around the world. So it's a very, I'm sure, challenging and much needed venture and they have the right person at the helm, Eugene. So blessings to you on your work there. I'd like to take a chance to move over to some of your writings. To our listeners, if you haven't read one of Eugene Cho's books, they need to be on your bucket list. I want to start with your first one, but first I'd like to read a quote from C.S. Lewis. He said in his book, The Screwtape Letters, The more often he feels without acting, the less he will ever be able to act, and in the long run, the less he will be able to feel. Lewis nailed this 80 years ago. There's a growing trend of feeling without acting, predominantly in the West, or the primary acting is espousing outrage on social media with no resulting change or resolution to an issue. I read your first book a couple of years back. I recall resonating with the contents of its pages throughout. It's entitled, Overrated, Are We More in Love with the Idea of Changing the World Than Actually Changing the World? Eugene, what prompted you to write this book and who would benefit from reading it? I wrote that book as a confession, uh, not so much as a how-to from an expert or a guru, but as someone who struggles with those very things Mm. of projecting a particular persona. The good news is that we should be affirming that there are people who want to make a difference, who want to make an impact, who want to change the world. But if we're not careful, we'll be more about the persona, the desire to appear a certain way. And it's a reminder to me in this confession and through that confession, trying to encourage other people that there is a cost 
to faithfulness. There's a cost to discipleship. There's a cost to obedience. There's a cost to justice. And so as we're speaking about justice, along with the theme of the Micah 6 community, I don't know of a single Christian who doesn't love justice. Or to put it more accurately, I don't know of a single Christian who doesn't love the idea of justice. And I think that's the distinction. We all love justice, or rather we love the idea of justice until there's a cost. And so that book was a very painful confession. And along the way, as a pastor, because I've, I guess, developed a reputation after some time of someone that was entrepreneurial and doing things, that I was encouraging other people to do likewise, but sensing that when folks were experiencing hardship or opposition or barrier or setback, that we would be so easily prone to quit or to deviate away from God's calling upon our lives. And so while the book is several years since it's published, I'm so proud of that book. And to this day, I still hear from many people who write that that book was a kick in the butt, is a nice way of putting it, but in a way that hopefully inspires people to dig in, to be faithful, to count the costs, and to pursue after the very things that God's placing upon our lives. Yeah, it is a phenomenal read. Now, Eugene, in this book, you challenge yourself and your readers to go beyond simply falling in love with the idea of changing the world. There's a common term known as virtue signaling, where we offer a presentation ascent of how virtuous we are. It plagues us all, regardless, as you said, of political affiliation or worldview. We're all susceptible to this. And social media has certainly served to magnify this to extreme levels. Are there some nuggets of wisdom that you might be able to offer our listeners of some practical ways to engage in constructive change rather than the mere presentation of it? Well, for the sake of the podcast, you know, there's numerous things, but let me just share two or three things. The first thing is really important and is that we need to really pray. And in praying, it becomes that much more internal and personal. We're asking God to take us on a deep journey. We're asking God before we say woe unto others in our pursuit of justice, we ask God to do a serious examination of our own hearts. I love how Isaiah, before he says woe unto you, he says woe unto me. I love how Nehemiah, before he embarks on this ambitious journey of rebuilding the walls, that he endures weeks of time repenting and praying and asking God to examine his heart. Mm -hmm. And so I know that for many of us as Christians, pray and prayer seems to be so elementary. But I've learned that it's the most elementary things that we often take for granted. And in taking it for granted, we skip the significance of those things. The second thing that I would say is to commit to learn. We're headline readers. We read the first paragraph. I know folks that have not read through a single book in its entirety because, again, we're just so used to light surface engagement. We're used to a 240 characters or we're used to a short Facebook post. And so I would challenge people that if they're passionate about something, to commit themselves to a journey of learning. And it doesn't mean that you have to go back to school or to be a PhD on that particular subject. 
but to have the ability to engage with anyone and everyone and that you're able to compel them not just with your passion but also your intellectual prowess your ability to engage in the nuances and depths and details of that subject the third thing that i would say is that i believe that when god speaks vision unto us he never speaks a vision in isolation to just one person I believe that God will convene, gather people that we can partner with and collaborate with. And so think and ponder about people that you can do life with, do ministry with, do justice with, do compassion with because as that one particular proverb from East Africa says and I know it's probably one that Rob you're familiar with but for those that are listening that might not be familiar with this particular cultural proverb If you want to go fast, go alone. But if you want to go far, go together. So that's the third thing, which is develop community so that we can go far and deep together. Those are three fantastic points for us all to ruminate on, to be mindful of as we engage in social media interaction. Thank you for that, Eugene. Along those lines, just over a year ago, You released the very timely book Thou Shalt Not Be a Jerk, a Christian's guide to engaging in politics. Our world has seemingly never been so polarized. Some believe the West is on the precipice of a civil war given the vast polarization. There's a radicalization on both sides of the political spectrum. Very few news sources can still be trusted. Your book is such a refreshing reminder on where and to whom our trust belongs. The pages are rife with practical tools and self-checks that are profound reminders of our peace in the midst of turbulence and how we're called to be leaders of transformation within the very fabric of the polarized world that we live in. Now, I could spend hours on this book, but I want to touch on three quotes from it. Before I do that, I want to read a list of the 10 commandments that you have for Christians in the public sphere. Number 1, thou shalt not go to bed with political parties. Number 2, thou shalt not be a jerk. Number 3, thou shalt listen and build bridges. 4, thou shalt be about the kingdom of God. 5, thou shalt live out your convictions 6 thou shalt have perspective and depth 7 thou shalt not lie get played or manipulate 8 thou shalt pray vote and raise your voice 9 thou shalt love people and love god and number 10 thou shalt trust that jesus remains king Now there's much shaming happening in our culture if one doesn't subscribe to a particular narrative The first quote, a temptation of our culture is the need to debate and comment on every single event. Sometimes wisdom is evident in silence. Sometimes silence is necessary for sanity. Now I've certainly personally learned this lesson. I've also learned that through the silence the truth eventually comes out. It can take time, but eventually truth always prevails. History has taught us as such even when the masses may say otherwise. So Pastor Eugene, how do you believe Christians can engage in politics without fear? Well, thanks again for highlighting the book. One practical advice that I would give to anyone who's interested in writing books in the future 
is to be warned because I have learned that the most prevalent way that people search me on Google, on the internet, is Eugene Cho overrated jerk. So just be caught, be warned <laughs> that you're just just be warned. It's the most awkward way to find out how people are searching for you. So here's what I would say. I'm concerned because I think there are several groups of Christians in terms of how we engage politics. And these are big strokes. And I just want to acknowledge that. But I do believe that these larger strokes exist. There's a group of Christians that have chosen to altogether abandon politics because they feel they're either exhausted, cynical. I'm raising my hand right now. But there is a group of Christians that have altogether abandoned politics because they feel that Christians should only focus on, and I'm doing my air quotes right now, spiritual things on quiet time and church and evangelism. And I'm not saying that those things aren't important, but I think there's something theologically dangerous when we think we should only focus on spiritual things. And therefore, we don't care anything about things here on earth. Mm. Now, there's a second group of people and they obsess about politics. They may not say it or acknowledge it, but there's a possibility that politics has grown to be the most pervasive idolatry of our time. Mm. And as a result, we justify our actions or our behavior and our words because of our allegiance to politics. And there's a third group of folks. And I think it's groups, it's Christians who believe and acknowledge that politics matter but they're not quite sure how to go about engaging it in a healthy way. And what I would share with people is this. The first thing is that we have to acknowledge that politics matter. Now, here's why it matters. It matters because politics influence policies which impact people. And every time I read the scriptures, I walk away sensing that God deeply cares about his creation and his people. Now, politics is not the ultimate answer. It's not our salvation, but it does matter. And it is one way and a prominent way in which we can seek to love God and to love our neighbors. Mm. Now, the second reason why politics matters is because we can acknowledge that oftentimes, as it is with so many things, it's the powerful, it's the wealthy, it's the prominent, it's the popular that are often the ones where rules and policies and what have you, it perpetually revolves around those with influence. And this is part of the reason why I made a decision to join Bread for the World, is because we can acknowledge that there are those who don't necessarily have the opportunity to have their realities acknowledged, their voices heard. I truly believe because everyone is created in the image of God, therefore we all have inherent dignity. Everybody has a voice, but here's mm -hmm. the injustice. Not everyone is heard. And this is one of the reasons why we can choose to engage politics so that we can advocate for those, particularly for myself as a Christian who believes in the pro-life from womb to tomb ethic, hmm. I want to do my part 
to speak up on behalf of each and every single person that matters to God. Well, along those lines, Eugene, another quote, the second one says, from a political perspective, cultural Christianity is when our theology is held captive by our politics rather than our politics being informed and even transformed by our theology. We've seen the polarities of this, both claiming Jesus as their own and which political party he would align himself with. So Eugene, how as Christ followers can we be immersed in practicing the latter, our politics being informed and transformed by our theology? That, Rob, is the quintessential question that we should be asking ourselves on a regular basis, not just in politics, with all things, our work, our relationships, our worship, our financial stewardship, it's the most important question so that we're never perplexed or hijacked by a particular agenda. And so in the book, one of the chapters is to not go to bed with politicians or with political parties. One of the most pervasive questions that I've been asked in the past year, in part because of the book that I've written, is that folks have asked me constantly, Eugene, are you a conservative or are you a progressive? Are you a Democrat or are you a Republican? And my honest answer, and it's not my attempt to be circuitous, but my honest answer is on what issue? What are we talking mm. about? So as to say that I don't believe there is a politician or a party that has a monopoly on the kingdom of God. Yeah. I worship Jesus and Jesus alone. I worship Jesus the King I believe in the kingdom of God and that as a result, I want to make sure that scripture, that Jesus the person, Jesus our Lord, Jesus our Savior, Jesus who teaches us about the ethics of the kingdom of God, that those are the things that inform how I seek to live my life. Now, is that easy? It's challenging. You just put politics aside. If you were to ask me, is kingdom living easy? I would say it's challenging. In part, this is why Jesus says, count the cost, carry the cross, and to follow me. And so even though there is a temptation for people who want us to subscribe to identity politics, to basically check a particular party up and down the ticket all the way, I would strongly urge and encourage people not to be lazy, not to fall seduced to this identity politics, but to again, acknowledge on a daily, regular basis to ask these questions. Who am I? Who do I serve? And what am I about? And I pray that we would all know that we are children of God. I'm a son of the Most High, Jesus Christ. I worship Jesus and Jesus alone. And I want to be about the kingdom of God and informed by the Beatitudes, the Sermon on the Mount, and the great commandments to love God and to love our neighbors, to seek justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly. Beautifully said, Eugene. And I do believe that identity politics will have its day. People will get tired of it. Many people already are. And there will be a reformation and a renewal in the political sphere with outlooks such as the one that you're encouraging all of us to have. The third quote in your book, this is a foundational piece of this podcast, actually. It says, if we're not willing to cross the street to love our neighbor, we have no right to be enraged at national politics. But if we're about kingdom work in our neighborhoods and cities, we can help to bring about positive change nationally. 
Extremism is on the rise, much of it fueled by the media. And C.S. Lewis also spoke about this in the Screwtape Letters. The senior devil writing to the junior devil says, All extremes, except extreme devotion to the enemy, which in this case is God, are to be encouraged. How can we return to the basics of first making our beds before going out to change the world when almost everywhere we turn tells us to do the exact opposite? Well, as you quote C.S. Lewis, I would also remind your listeners about Mother Teresa, who says, if you want to change the world, start with the person next to you, in front of you. And I think it's really important for us that as we consider the incredible ministry of Jesus Christ, who literally changed the world, who was Lord and Savior, but also modeled the kind of life we should live. He was radical and scandalous in the sense that Yes, while he did supernatural miracles, we can talk about his miracles up and down for weeks and months upon a time. And yet some of the most scandalous things that Jesus chooses to engage in was to speak with people, was to have meals with people, was to befriend people, was to sit down with people. It was often in the unspectacular things of life that he shows us a glimpse of what kingdom living is about. In our world today, especially I think in Christian vernacular, we talk a lot about changing the world. We talked earlier about my book, Overrated, and I'm not suggesting that God doesn't have a plan for each and every single one of us, but I think a more appropriate question, a more relevant question for every single one of us is even if God didn't have something spectacular in store for us, would we still be faithful in the simple and mundane things of mm. life? Mm, Even question. if that means crossing the street and actually befriending our literal neighbors, to know their names, to know their stories. In some ways, I think it's analogous to global missions. And in no way am I trying to diminish the importance of global missions. So please hear me out. I'm a huge, huge believer of global missions, maybe more so today when there are so many people both outside the church and even inside the church who are speaking about maybe doing away with missions. I think it matters. But I also think there's a danger in being so infatuated with doing global missions or dealing with global hunger in a faraway nation and yet we're not willing to engage with the homeless within our own city streets, in our own neighborhoods. Both matter to God, and I pray that both would matter to the people of God. Amen on that. Eugene, this book is pure gold. It's so important in this epoch of time, thou shalt not be a jerk. Is there anything else that you want to add pertaining to this particular book? I know it sounds really self-serving, and I'm not trying to make it self-serving. I just really want to encourage people, go to your library and check out the book, grab a copy wherever books are sold. And here's why I wrote this imperfect book, in addition to what I've already shared. You know, over the past year, I've received some criticism from other pastors that I, as a pastor, as a Christian leader, should not engage politics. But the reason why I've pushed back and the reason why I'm urging your listeners to check out this book is that if we avoid the 
hard work of discipleship. So in this case, if we're not engaging other believers about the dangers and the importance of political engagement as followers of Jesus, not as the totality of our Christian discipleship, but as part of our larger witness, the danger is whether we like it or not, people are being discipled in their political worldview by others, Mm -hmm. whether it's MSNBC or Fox News or CNN or their newspaper or their favorite political pundit, people are informing people within the larger capital C church. Is this book perfect? Far from it. It has its holes and flaws and it has its biases, but this is a attempt to try to encourage people that we again worship Jesus and Jesus alone and that we're called to have the kingdom of God influence us in every aspect of our lives, including our engagement in the public arena of politics. Well said, Eugene. I'll have links for this particular book, both on the website and on our YouTube page. Eugene, you've got a book just about to be released entitled No Longer Strangers, Transforming Evangelism with Immigrant Communities. Can you just touch on this for a moment? Well, thanks for highlighting this book. I will just share with folks, this was a labor of love because this is my first book in which I've taken the role as an editor. I'm a co-editor with Reverend Dr. Samira Izadi Page. She herself is a refugee immigrant from Iran. We have gathered a significant group of colleagues and pastors and practitioners and therapists, numerous, including Andrew Bush, Laura Bashore, KJ Hill, Torley Krua, Sandra Maria Van Opstal, Jenny Yang. They are the contributors. And then we have many firsthand testimonies, again, from refugees and immigrants. And the reason why we wrote this book is that we want to acknowledge the high view, the important view of evangelism. We believe Jesus Christ is King, He is good news, and that as Christians, we're called to be ambassadors and heralds of that good news. But sometimes, as Christians, our good intentions aren't always paralleled by good practices. And so this book is, again, an attempt to be somewhat analogous to When Helping Hurts. There's a book called When Helping Hurts. Mm -hmm. And this is somewhat similar when we're trying to encourage people. Yes, we want to affirm evangelism, but to do it in a way that acknowledges transparency, integrity, particularly as we engage communities that are vulnerable including immigrants and refugees. What a great resource. Is this targeted more towards seminaries and academia, towards churches, towards individuals? Is there a certain place you're targeting, or is this just a generalized book for everyone to read? Well, the answer I'm supposed to give you is that anyone and everyone should read it. Now, I'm going to be very honest here. My Mm -hmm. publisher probably won't be super thrilled. (laughs) It's probably going to be folks that are interested in immigrants and refugees and interested in the importance of evangelism. 
But I really believe that every single Christian should be interested in evangelism. Mm. It's part of our witness and discipleship. But I do agree, I do believe that there will be institutions and organizations and seminaries and Bible colleges, but also NGOs that are doing this work that will really glean from the wisdom of so many of our contributors. I'll just share one story. It's a story that I've heard numerous times. It's one that I've come across personally a couple times. And it's when organizations want to teach English to immigrants or to refugee communities, whether it happens here in North America context or actually in refugee camps globally around the world. Now, there's an obvious reason why individuals are enticed by the opportunity to learn basic English. And that's great. I'm absolutely in support of that kind of program. But I think it lacks honesty and transparency when we're offering to teach English without actually divulging to these communities. For example, in one specific instance, there were these Christian communities and NGOs that wanted to teach English in a predominantly 98% Muslim community around the world in this refugee camp. And they failed to let them know that they were going to use the Bible as the actual resource to teach English. And they did this with the children of this refugee camp. And as you can probably fathom, the parents, the Muslim parents, they were outraged yeah. by this particular thing. And again, I think the intention was good, but it really is not a good practice that yeah. bears witness to who we are and who we desire to be and more often than not, it burns bridges and rumors begin to spread among others that Christians cannot be trusted. So that's an example, one that we share in the book along with others. And again, I would love to encourage people to check out this book, No Longer Strangers. It just sounds fantastic. And I think we all need a good refinement in our orthopraxy and the way that we are ambassadors of Christ. Again, it's called No Longer Strangers, Transforming Evangelism with Immigrant Communities. I can think off the top of my head, so many people and so many organizations that will be very receptive to this book. Now, Eugene, we met a number of years ago and at our first meeting, just instantly felt a camaraderie with you. Your passion is just so evident, and I know you're a very busy person, so I want to thank you so much for joining us on this podcast, and I'd like to leave this open for you right now. If you have any final words that you'd like to share to our listening audience. Wow. Thank you again so much. I've got some random things that I'll share, and I hope that it's okay. First of all, Rob, thank you for hosting me. <laughs> you have an incredible podcast voice. That's the first thing that I want to share. I am just, I'm smitten by your podcast voice. That's number one. Number two, I know this is completely off topic, but I just think it's important for us to acknowledge in light of the fact that the theme of your podcast about mercy and humility and hospitality and justice, that there are so many challenges around the world right now. So many for us to list but I still find it challenging that there just isn't enough 
awareness about the anti-Asian hatred and racism mm. that is pervasive around the world. Mm -hmm. I know in part this is a personal issue for you because you live in a blended family. I just want to highlight that and encourage those who are listening, not just with this subject, but may we be women and men, followers of Jesus, whose hearts are overjoyed by the things that God is joyous about, and may our hearts break and ache for the things that break the heart of God. And the last thing that I'll just share here, you know, oftentimes when we listen to interviews or conferences or podcasts, I mean, the reality is, Rob, you've made me seem like there are a lot of things going on in my life. And maybe it's true, but at the bare quintessential moment, the most fundamental thing is I, like you and like so many people, I'm just trying to be as faithful as possible every day in the simple things. And I would just love to encourage your listeners, let's be faithful every single day. There is a spirit of discouragement that I think is sweeping across the world, mm -hmm. sweeping across the Capital C Church. And I just want to encourage people that your life doesn't have to be like Rob's life. It doesn't have to be my life. It doesn't have to be somebody else's life. We're just called to be faithful, to seek justice, to love mercy, to walk humbly. And I believe if we're faithful in those simple things, whether we're seen or unseen, acknowledged or not acknowledged, that it will bring great delight to the heart of God. And that's all that it matters. Wise words from Pastor Eugene Cho. Eugene, thank you again for joining us. To access any of the resources we discussed today, please visit eugenecho.com or episode 22 on the 68culture.org website. Thank you. God bless you. Thanks for sharing your time with the 6-8 Culture Podcast, where we share stories of personal transformation that are making our world a more just, kind, and humble place. Join us for our next session of Impacting Stories with 6-8 Culture. This is Rob McKinley signing out with a reminder for us all to act justly, to be kind, and to walk humbly.